Hello and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on August 14th, the day before National Liberation Day. To introduce my guest today, Benjamin Ketsev Silberstein is a Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, where is that, by the way? Uh, it's in Philadelphia. On the streets of Philadelphia. Exactly. Uh, he runs the website North Korean Economy Watch. Now, uh, is that uh, Curtis Melvin? He started it. I took over as editor. I don't know if we, if we made that a, the transition official, but for now, I'm the editor of the website. Okay. So but he laid, he did the whole groundwork and actually made it what it is. So all the credit to him. Excellent. And you're also a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Pennsylvania. Yep, that's right. Fantastic. So you've chosen to research your uh, for your PhD thesis the topic of social control and surveillance in North Korea all the way from 1954 to this year, 2019, which is uh, it's a very meaty subject and a big period of time. It's a subject we don't see dealt with much uh, in other places, not to any level of depth or, or detail. What made you choose that topic? So first off, I should say that I'll probably end up narrowing down the time period quite a bit just because... <laughs> As we speak, I am literally finishing up one year of fieldwork in Seoul. And uh, I mean, these these projects, you know, the, the, the frames of them, they always evolve. So so I'll probably end up going up until whatever year I finish. Uh, but yeah, so, so the reason I, I chose this topic is that to me, this has always been the big mystery of North Korea. Sort mm. of, I started looking at, I started reading about North Korea when I was like 14 years old or something. And I, because I just couldn't understand how everyday life might work in a country with, as far as we're aware, no political opposition at all. There is, I mean, the image of North Korea very much is of complete unity and complete obedience and things like that. And obviously, when you scrape, we start scraping uh, sort of on the surface, you, you find out that that's not entirely, it's not that simple. Uh, but at the same time, there's just so many questions on how political control works that I didn't find any satisfying answers to in any of the books that I read. Uh, so I figured, why not try to try to dig a little deeper myself? Have you ever been to North Korea? Uh, yes, I've, I've I've only been once. So I guess compared to you, I've uh, I'm a real noob, as they used well, to say. I'm, on, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only two trips ahead. So it's, oh really? Uh, it's yeah. No, I went there 11 years ago uh, in 2008. Uh-huh. two years before me. So in, in one sense, you're ahead of me. Uh, now, did did you see any overt signs of surveillance uh, by the state while you were there? So I don't think that these are things that one sees necessarily. I mean, there's just looking at you, you have a book in here about Cambodia in the studio. There's a, a Swedish socialist reporter who went to, to Cambodia in the 70s. And he said that, well, everyone's smiling at me and they seem really happy. So I don't understand what people are like. There's news about a, a genocide. It's all manufactured by the CIA. Mm. Things you can't really tell. You can't see surveillance unless you can sort of sense it, I think, or unless you, you know what to look for. So my, that's a very long way of, of saying no, I didn't see any signs of state surveillance, but I think everything from the little quip that one of my guide made, guides made about, because I kept asking a lot of questions. I was straight out of high school and I was very childish mm -hmm. and I kept asking, you know, a lot of stuff. And eventually it said to me, you know, we have a saying in North Korea that knowing too much will kill you. Uh, <laughs> really? And oh, yeah, this is when we're up in Samjion, like very far from the, the, the Swedish embassy. I don't know, it was just kind of... Well, you know, in English, we also have that saying, curiosity killed the cat. One of our listeners is bound to think of that as well. It's interesting that your, your comparison to the uh, the Swedish journalist who went to uh, to Cambodia during the, uh, the, uh, the Khmer Rouge uh, period, uh, I was reminded when, when listening to you of uh, a report written in the early 2000s. I always have trouble remembering the name. It's something like North Korea lifting the veil or North Korea behind the veil or North Korea 
um, you know, behind the smokescreen. And it was a report uh, by the North American Association of Jurists. Oh, I, I probably, remember this I probably one. mangled that name. Yeah. But they, they, so it's a series of judges, court workers, uh, law clerks, and, and lawyers who went to North Korea uh, on a kind of a fact-finding trip of a total of one week. Not one of them spoke uh, any word of Korean. And they said things like, uh, oh, you know, we, we went to a park and we saw people smiling and they shared their food with us. And uh, nowhere did we see police carrying guns. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it seems like a much uh, peace, more peaceful place than America, right? Because uh, cops aren't even armed in North Korea. Well, there are no cops in the ordinary sense of the word, but uh, sure, sure. And it, it just reminded me of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's start by defining our terms. Um, you mentioned, I've, I've read, I should point out to our listeners, that even though you haven't read your, uh, written your uh, complete thesis yet, uh, I have read your, um, you know, sort of your abstract or your uh, proposal, from which I know that Songbun is an important uh, concept Absolutely. in your research. So what is Songbun and why is it important in this research? So Songbun... I mean, the, the, the easiest way to summarize it, I suppose, would be family background. But I think the word itself is interesting. I remember when I, I came to South Korea in 2010 to study Korean, and, and I saw one of the few words I knew in Korean, songbun, uh, written on a, a cereal box, because it means content as well. And, and, and it's telling in a sense. Uh, it, it, it refers to the official registration system for family background in North Korea whereby the state uh, records um, each person's uh, lineage uh, as many generations back as possible. And it's one of these things that for, for every, whenever someone is, might get promoted or applies to, well, you don't really apply, but, but is considered for higher education and things like that, a person's family background is sort of cross-checked to, to make sure that it's, it's not complicated or problematic, mm -hmm. that you're not the descendant of what North Korea considers war criminals or, or people who collaborated with Japan. Mm, class enemies. Class enemies, yeah, yeah. And do we know when this all began and where the, where, the, where, the, where the origins come from for the Songbun system? So it really evolved in stages. But the, the year that's usually cited for when the first investigation started into people's family background was 1958. Mm. It's one of the things that I've tried to, to find more answers to as to how did this actually go down. Uh, so basically what happened, to put it very, very roughly... Uh, the, the state decided to, to investigate each citizen's family background to get a sense of who is living where and who are they and what are their potential attitudes. And you have to understand a little bit of, know a couple of things about Marxism, I think, to understand why this actually makes a lot of sense. If you assume that each person's outlook on society stems from where they stand socially, then yeah, it actually, it's quite sensible to investigate, okay, where are they sort of in socioeconomic terms? If they're rich, well, then they're bound to be class enemies and so on and so forth. So I've been interviewing quite a few people during my year in, in, in Seoul. And one of the most fascinating stories I heard is from someone who fortunately was, he's old enough to remember when these investigations happened. And mm -hmm. he, he told me that, well, yeah, like it's, well, just one day a few people who they, they said they were taking a census of sorts. Mm -hmm. and, and they started asking things about our, like they wanted to see our chokpo, like our lineage our, our map of lineage, basically, which mm. a lot of Korean, fa a lot of families in South Korea have these too. Yeah, I don't, would you say like majority? A, a form of family tree. Form yeah, of family I, I think tree, uh, yeah. majority of South Koreans have one, and it used to be, uh, you know, the uh, actually, you know, what to a certain extent, in, I believe in South Korea, it still is the family tree. That's sort of the legal document, right? So, uh, uh, if you're um, if you're you know born overseas to a Korean uh, couple, 
Yeah. Uh, the only way that you're recognized as being a Korean citizen is if your family go to the uh, local embassy and have you registered in that Jokbo. That's, that's really a, it's probably the most sensible way to, to understand sort of roughly what Songbun is. Like it is a, it's a registry of your, of your, of your family background. And, right. and when these investigations happen, I mean, it was very much from the best that I've been able to, to, to gather. It's, it was very much like any census that you're trying to, you're basically trying to see who lives in the country. And this is pretty important when you've gone through a devastating war with a lot of population movements across borders and with a lot of suspicions, both in North and South Korea, of uh, potential uprisings and, and, and uh, potential guerrilla cells. And but is it like a, a census in that it's updated every 10 years? So there's a chance to uh, have your songbun changed? Well, no, not exactly. It's, it's much more static than that. There are ways of, there theoretically, there are ways of changing it. It's, it's updated in, th- there's no exact cycle of updates or anything like that, but every now and then. I, I should actually try to calculate to see if there is a pattern in, in the yearly in the cycles. But no, it's not. I mean, it's it's definitely it's not a census in in for all intents and purposes. It's uh, I think in the form of it might be similar, but but it's uh, essentially a social rank depending on your perceived political loyalty based on your family background. And I mean, in most countries, the census does not fill any function of that sort. Okay, so when new children are born. Are they? Uh, do they just automatically inherit the songbun of whatever their parents have? Yes. Okay. Now, uh, uh, what do you mean when you say? Well, let's just explain what surveillance really is. What right. do you mean by that? The, the, there's several ways of defining surveillance, but I think that the, the sort of most reasonable way is the government's way of collecting whatever information it might need about uh, about the citizens. So, you know, in, in in South, I mean, there's surveillance in every country in one way or the other. In South Korea, where I, when I want to make a copy, a photocopy of North Korean documents, I have to write down my affiliation and my name and my phone number and date of birth, and then all that gets faxed to the uh, to the authorities. So, basically, the, the the state gathering information about people, and you can do this for several purposes. A lot of institutions in North Korea that are commonly associated with political and social surveillance, they they actually fill purely administrative functions as well for things like like the Inminban, for example, I think is probably the most interesting example where Okay, what's an Inminban? Tell us. Oh, an Inminban is a like people's neighborhood unit, mm-hmm. essentially. So so every neighborhood in North Korea is a is sort of a number of families are put together in a unit where with one Inminbanjang, the head of a, of this group on top. And this head person is regularly in touch with with the authorities. And there is usually a People's security agent affiliated with with each Indian bond that sort of um, keeps tabs on it. And but what 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 these the, when I first started reading about these institutions, I actually wanted to do my whole dissertation on just the Indian bond because mm. I found it so fascinating. Like this, the, the the most grassroots level surveillance mechanism. Right. I mean, like you said, it, it's it's literally on a neighborhood level. Yeah. But they yeah. also do things like organize. Uh, the sweeping of the local streets right, and, and the taking away of the rubbish and uh, making sure that no one's house gets broken into and things like that, right? I mean, right. it's, it's so sort the, of a neighborhood watch system almost, isn't it? Yes. So that's exactly the point that I wanted to make is that they they do a lot of different things. It's not just watching over people to see if someone utters a critical word about the government or watches South Korean dramas or anything like that. That's, I mean, I've, I've actually, the majority of people I've, inter- I've interviewed have been former heads of, of Inminban, like Inminbanjang. Most of, most of their work seems to be things like mobilization for for harvest right. and, and and cleanup and if there's 
like if you need a shock brigade to to do some like build a house somewhere, then these are the people who get that done. They're the ones who mobilize the the members of the Inlinban of the neighborhood. So I mean, yes, that's definitely surveillance in a sense, but it's not what we would classically associate a police state with. I think not to say that it's not oppressive or anything. That's it, it is in a different way. But a lot of what we tend to think of as surveillance is actually quite boring. It's quite mundane. So it's not just a matter of rooting out potential political enemies. So that's certainly a very important purpose. And do they work? Uh, closely together in concert with the uh, Ministry of State Security or the Boy Boo or Boy Song, as some of us uh, North Korean watchers might know it? Yes. So each neighborhood unit has an associated Bonwon, like a, uh, how would we translate a social security agent? Like more like a police officer, basically. Each each neighborhood unit has an associated police officer or Bonwon that keeps in touch with with the local, with Inminbanjang. Some have told me that they've also had Boiwon, like uh, state security agents mm. associated with them. And I, I don't think it's a general thing. It seems that it's more prevalent in border regions where, okay. where there is more of a, a, where they have more of a purpose. But then the, the, the head of the neighborhood unit is in regular contact with this. Uh, they get quite close over time with the, um, the, the this police officer, quote unquote. And they meet regularly and they ask for reports and information regularly. So yeah, so that's really what when people as when you when you're doing this kind of research, you constantly have to motivate what makes North Korea different. I've had some people argue that well, you have this in South Korea too. You have the Ransanghui, right. basically, yeah, like neighborhood unit. You could it's not a proper translation, but like neighborhood organizations that deal with with communal stuff. But and they're not nearly as intrusive. Well, so that's the thing. That's, I mean, that's, I don't even know who my local yeah, yeah. Uh, Banjang is. And I is. think there were there were similarities in the 70s, mm. you know, the, the harsher times. Well, I think it was also part of the, it, it was a way that you could roll it out through the uh, the Semal movement, right? The, yeah. The, the new villages movement. Yeah. It just, in, in the urban environment, it's impossible to do that now in, in South Korea. Yeah, yeah. But so, so that's really one of the key differences in the North Korean system is that this is the direct link between state security, state surveillance institutions and the people, each and every citizen. You don't, you certainly don't have that in South Korea. You don't have that in most countries. Now, would a person be an Inmin Banjang for their life, you know, for, for uh, forever? Or is it like a, a fixed term and do they get changed? It's not a fixed number of years or anything. I don't believe it's a lifetime thing because that's a good question mm. I, I, I with a lot of these things where I try to find out what the rules are it turns out there are no rules enforced across the board the, the North Korean system like a lot of other systems is very fractured and I think it's more poorly run than we give it credit for but no I, I don't believe it's a lifetime assignment most people I've spoken with they they've gotten this assignment fairly late in life like in their well not late but you know 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s sometimes which is definitely not old is- but yeah. Now, are the origins of the uh, the surveillance system, is it all connected back to Songun somehow? If you're really studying anything related to, to social life in North mm-hmm. Korea, you cannot escape Songun. It's the one thing across the board that each and every person that I've interviewed for my dissertation, it, it just comes up naturally. To put it very simply, people with more problematic Songbun are watched much more closely. Uh, when I've asked people, so did you did you ever encounter like uh, state surveillance agents? And they said, well, yeah, there was always someone following me, following me because I have a bad songbun, I have a bad background, so I was always being watched. Mm. If you're of a better family background, you're not as suspicious. Did you get any stories from uh, from people about uh, instances of um, you know somebody saying the wrong thing or telling a bad joke about? Uh 
you know, w- with a political flavor that then got reported up through the Inmin Banjang to somebody and, and, you know, maybe some negative consequences came from it? Not personally, but I, I mean, it's a difficult question to get at, I think, when you're interviewing people. Well, so what I've been really curious about is in instances where in, like an Inmin Banjang or someone has reported someone in their neighborhood unit, you know, what, what was that like and, and what kind of action was taken? The thing is, if you ask someone, did you report someone and have them sent to a prison camp? Most people are not going to say yes. Even right. Well, that's, that's, yeah. So, but, so what I've mostly asked is, did you see any instances of this mm. or have you heard of instances of this? And everyone, every single person I've spoken with has. Usually, I'd say nine out of 10 cases, it had to do with alcohol. That you, well, so somebody got drunk and said something yeah. like, oh, that Kim Jong-il is a fat so-and-so. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they just, they were just never seen again. And it's interesting to me, for in a, a lot of people I've spoken with, to them, these are questions that are they, they seem almost bizarre, very self-evident that, yes, of course, this happens all the time. Of course, there was someone in my neighborhood that got taken away. It's just mm. the thing that... You know, and I asked my parents if they were kids, they'll say they like someone told me they asked their parents and they just said, like, don't 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 ask about this. Don't ask anyone about this. Just don't talk about it. Pretend you didn't like you didn't see anything. And that's that. It's interesting because, you know, I mean, living in in South Korea, uh, the, the rituals around alcohol are such an important part of the social fabric, especially among men. Yeah, uh, in, in South Korea, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that to a certain extent that's also true in North Korea, based on what I've read and what I've seen. And I just wonder if it, if uh, people in the North who uh, maybe some of them had a reputation for well, you don't don't drink with that guy because you know he's likely to uh, to take notes and report it. Like there'd be people who would be sort of ostracized and left out of yeah. the drinking parties because yeah. uh, you know you can't trust them when you tell a joke when you're drunk or something. Yeah, that's that's a really it's, a, it's interesting. I haven't I haven't thought of thought of it. I didn't. The only thing I've heard that comes slightly close is there's apparently an expression of eating eating the rice of the of the boy boy of the state security mm. that you're 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 on the you're on the pay on, on the, the take. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yes, like in some instances, people will know who who is. You can kind of just sense it. But in most cases, and that's one of the if a surveillance system works well, you never see it. That's when it's the if 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 it functions properly, then right. you're you're not supposed to know that it's there, and and that uh, it's the same way for North Korea too. Most people don't really know who is talking to the government because uh, if they're doing their job properly, then nobody will know. Well, that's right. You'll just notice the uh, the, the fallout. I guess people are moved. Yeah. Here and there. You know, yeah. people don't turn up to work the next day yeah. or somebody turns up with a black eye or something. Yeah. yeah. The, the most cases that I've heard of where people are, are deported within within the country to other other localities, it's after a Songbun investigation, like mm-hmm. reinvestigation, that suddenly it's discovered that someone's uh, family member, close or distant relative was in, uh, was collaborating with Japan or something like that. I don't know how you find these things out decades after the right, fact, I, was, was, I have heard of stories like that. It's always fascinated me. Like, uh, yeah, how, how the heck do you find this out later on? Three witnesses, I believe, is uh, is what, what they're operating on. I that's, that's, uh, and I've heard that you need, the, the, the most consistent number I've heard is you need seven people to vouch for you to change your Songbun status. Oh, to, to, upwards. Yeah, yeah to, to clarify that this is actually not accurate, because that's 
also, I heard so many stories of people saying that, yes, they, they were saying that we, someone in our family did X, Y, Z, but it's not true. Like, mm. this is not accurate. Somebody yeah. told on us for personal reasons yeah. or something, made this up. And I don't know if, I don't know if that's a story that people invent because they're ashamed of having a family member like that, or it's, or if it's true that, yeah, people, like, there are a lot of mistakes made. And, and it's like that in every bureaucracy, right? Well, but, I was going to say, I mean, uh, it does sound like something that happens uh, in every surveillance state to a certain extent, yeah. that someone's yeah. going to say, well, you know, my neighbor's no good. Uh, you know, he beats his wife or something like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. next thing you know, you see him hauled away. Uh, now, you, you write that surveillance is like uh, the gardening of society. What do you mean by that? Where's that phrase from? So this is a phrase from uh, coined by uh, the sociologist uh, Zygmunt Bauman in his book, uh, Modernity and the Holocaust, where he, I mean, he, he I really like the phrase gardening because it, it sort of evokes images of some like the government kind of trimming society in whichever way they want to mm. go along their their ideological principles and that that's really what i mean surveillance that's the purpose of surveillance to to make things to you have an idea of what a good society should be like in the north korean case a quote unquote big red family like that's uh that's a, a phrase that i come across a lot in north korean propaganda so you try your best to get rid of people who don't fit that mold just like a gardener who's rooting out the weeds mm. sort of and i mean just yesterday, I was reading a speech by by Kim Jong Il about like grabbing, like uprooting the, the like anti state uh, tendencies and things like that. So yep. I mean, it, I think thinking of it as a garden makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a good analogy. What about uh, the phrase "seeing like a state"? Yeah, that's uh, coined by uh, a scholar named James uh, James Scott. He's written a very famous book about why all these schemes of perfecting society have led to so much so to such horrible things historically like no one sets out to create a totalitarian dictatorship i mean you no, nobody would put it that way at least you know mao mao zedong never said oh i'm gonna launch a, a great leap forward and kill 36 million people like that's not that's never what you're striving for but it mm -hmm. ends up happening anyway and so this phrase seeing like a state it's uh it, it basically means that you as a government you you need to admin, administer society you need to sort of there, there's certain there's just certain things that you do as a state and one of them is you should know who lives in your territory which is why i think that the this is such a good phrase used for when looking at songbun it's a very good way of looking at it as it's the north korean government needing to very early in its history needing to sort of look at its population in the way that a state would just knowing a little bit more about who they are in order to be able to manage them i mean a lot of information gathered by surveillance institutions is never used. It just sits there uh, in case you need it. Just turning back to your idea of, uh, of seeing like a state, listening to your description, it just reminds me of state apparatuses. They have uh, a bureaucracy and a bureaucracy literally, um, you know, from the, the French word for desk, if I'm not mistaken, it, 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 Im it implies paperwork, right? And that's what bureaucrats do. They do a lot of paperwork. Uh, and uh, have you ever tried imagining just the size of the paper archives of all the intelligence reports in North Korea? I mean, it, it just, it, paper is so heavy when you get a lot of it. And you yeah. can just imagine that buildings must be specially designed in North Korea. Korea or, or underground tunnels just to house these endless reams of paper. But everybody writing reports on each other. I mean, don't forget, uh, when, when you were in North Korea uh, and when I was in North Korea, you're always with two tour guides at one time. So they're all writing reports on each other so, you know, uh, they can cross-reference and so that you can tell if somebody's not being honest or, uh, you know, or, or uh, hiding some aspects of the truth. And just the, the sheer size, the archives must be yeah. ginormous. Yeah. 
And the manpower too, just the hours that all this takes. Right. You know, go, go and find box five, you know, file box five, six, seven uh, and, and pull out, uh, you know, file F3 because yeah. we, we've got something to add or take away from yeah. it. It's, it's so much work. But it's, it's interesting. Just I think it, it says so much the extent to which the North Korean government has made it a priority. It's not like it's, there are better things to spend resources on, clearly. But this is very important because at the end of the day, this is, you're protecting the leader, you're protecting the country by keeping tabs on the population. That's that's the purpose, theoretically. Since the early 2000s, more and more of the Songbun records have been digitized. So... Maybe there's there might be less of a uh, paper trove, but um, really in every like the, there are around North Korea there are, I, I I don't know the exact number, but but in every at least on the provincial level, I believe even on the city level, there is a, a special office for for the Songbun registration mm. where you have like massive file cabinets of everyone's Songbun card. Yeah. And when, when, like during these campaigns, when Songbun is, uh, when the records are, are updated, people get mobilized to mostly women for some reason to, to write down these, these uh, both update the Songbun records by hand, but also write new ID cards for people. Because usually it's a Songbun reinvestigation is often associated with the government issuing new ID cards. Oh, yes. Now, do you get any sense that, uh, that surveillance in North Korea has, has uh, increased or decreased in vigilance over the years? One of the most interesting discoveries for me has been that I, I started this project thinking that I was going to write the, the classical story of, okay, things were really rough before the 1990s, and then after the 1990s, turns out they're not as rough anymore. Mm. But when I asked people about this, like, so, so for, for, for things like what, what changed over time, like, mm. were you, were, was there a change in, like, were you less nervous? Like, were there, was there a level of vigilance that was different? Almost everyone has, has told me, like, no, we, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, why would that, why would that happen? As in asking things like, would you talk critically? Of, did you ever speak critically about the government with mm-hmm. any of your friends? And, and again, I thought people would say, well, no, n- not before the 1990s. Things were really stern. But then after the 1990s, when the, the public distribution system broke down and stuff, right. surveillance got less intense. But I mean, it just dawned on me eventually that, well, this is interesting. Like, this is a result in itself that here, here I was thinking that everything was so radically different. And it turns out that somehow... The surveillance apparatus, judging by every single North Korean I've spoken with, actually hasn't changed that much in vigilance. Hmm. And I think it's what one thing with surveillance of things like economic crime, that's a category of its own, in a way. And, and there, yes, the state has definitely gotten less vigilant about enforcing laws and regulations for, for economic activity. So like what, trading like on the market. Theft or bribery? Uh, I wouldn't, no, I would say more things that used to be illegal, okay, like so trading. Market activity, right, yeah. Market activity, right. Market activity or certain kinds of bribery, I suppose. I mean, mm-hmm. bribery has definitely gotten a lot more common, although it wasn't entirely absent before either. I, we, we, it's hard to divide... Like any hard periodization of North Korean history is very, I mean, with any country's history, it gets very tricky because mm. things don't really change that much overnight, typically. I mean, there was definitely corruption in the 70s and 80s as well, gotten a lot more common in the 90s and 2000s. But it is remarkable how strict the, how how the surveillance apparatus of political of sort of thought crimes or, or 
as they say in, in, in Korean, like uh, speaking mistakes or crimes. Mm. Uh, doesn't saying the wrong seem thing, to, yeah. yeah, saying the wrong thing doesn't seem like that's actually changed all that much. And, and again, it speaks to how important this is for the government. So the, the loss of economic control and the breakdown of the public distribution system and the, uh, the failure of North Korea's economy for, well, at least most of the 1990s and the early 2000s didn't mean any loss of social control. It might have changed in, in certain ways. Th- there might have been more of a control on things like what, what people wear or like, I don't know, using South Korean phrases when speaking. Mm. I'm actually not sure. But when it comes to the important stuff, like can you have a conversation with your friends in North Korea saying critical things about Kim Jong-un? No, you most people would absolutely not do that. And that's been, or, or about the leader, or about the, the ideology or the state. And that's been a constant. And I have a very hard time seeing that that's changed. So and that's one of the central arguments that I'll, I'll most likely be making in my dissertation is we think that so much changed with the 1990s where in fact state control is still very, very strong. And I would say, under, I, would, I would argue on Kim Jong-un, it's, it's gotten even stronger in a, lot, in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. there's so much, just if we just look at how much news is coming out through channels like Daily and K about enforcement of border security and, and searches for, for South Korean media and things like that, like outside information, seems to have gotten a lot stronger over the past couple of years. If, if history is sort of an arc going towards like the, you know, the phrases like the end of history and, and, and whatnot, that if we, we like to think that everything is trending toward liberalism and right. North Korea would seem to fit that model partially uh, with, with marketization and things like that. But the rise of market economy can actually coincide with equally harsh or even harsher political oppression. I think that's uh, Mm. in North Korea is a very interesting case of that, that economic liberalization or whatever you want to call it doesn't doesn't necessarily come with political liberalization. What about flows of information within North Korea, you know, coming from outside? Does that spell any any signs of social instability or lack of control by the government? Well, the fact that information from the outside makes it into the country at all is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a failure of control by the government in a way. I don't think that we can confidently say that we've seen signs of that leading to social instability necessarily. Mm. I, it's not a, we, I don't think we can draw any firm conclusions as of yet. But yeah, I mean, theoretically, that should happen, right? That's, uh, and for, for, for people that have told me stories of how their worldviews changed, it usually, it's usually had to do with, oh, I, I had the chance to go abroad or I heard this about South Korea or you never know how much of that is a sort of narrative that comes that's constructed after the fact, too. But um, but yeah, I mean, it it definitely matters. I'm not sure that it matters to the extent that we can speak of social instability following outside information flowing into North Korea. But of course, the the more of it we see and the maybe the, the longer that these flows go on for. Maybe we'll see something change. Yeah, in, I remember in 2004 here in Seoul, I went to, uh, to hear um, Lota Demazier speak, who uh, was, uh, people will probably remember, the, uh, the only democratically elected prime minister of the former East German state. Uh, and he said, um, or he was asked by somebody in the audience, what would lead to change and transformation in North Korea? And he said it was information. You know, we should uh, flood North Korea with external information. Uh, but... As you say, we know that external information is getting in, and it's even easier in some ways now. Like, for example, I remember reading this book by a North Korean diplomat in the early 1990s who talked about people watching video cassettes 
uh, you know, watching videotapes and uh, the, the boy boy or somebody would come along and turn off the electricity to the building and they'd go to every apartment or flat and yeah. find these tapes that are caught in the machines that they couldn't get out. And you could do that back then. Yeah. But now with USB uh, disks and thumb drives, you know, all you do is pull the thing out of the, the, the reader and uh, and there's nothing there to be you know, to be caught by the police. And a lot of these things are battery operated anyway, so they don't operate on the main. So it actually seems in some ways easier to get information in. Yeah. But as you point out, it doesn't seem to be leading to any deeper uh, socialists, but we're not getting more accounts of um, of you know uh, disturbances. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there there might be a lot that we don't know about too, and we can't really do any opinion polls or anything in North Korea. Like we don't know. Maybe, maybe this is quietly changing everyone's worldview. I'm just saying that I'm not. I don't think we've seen tangible evidence of that as of yet. Right, but in in contrast to other um, totalitarian states, we still don't know the name of uh, any confirmed Korean underground author, right? We've got that book um, Bundy, by Bundy, yeah. uh, of which there I, I have heard some doubt about the provenance of it, you know, uh, is it really North Korean? Is it written in a North Korean style? Was it written by a defector after coming out of North Korea? We can't know. What we don't have is any accounts, at least I have never heard any, maybe you have, uh, in talking to North Korean refugees of books that were written and passed around hand-to-hand within North Korea. Yeah. Are you no, familiar with anything no, like that? nothing. No, so that that's, that's still yet to come, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Or it exists and we just don't know about it. We I, we have to assume that what we know about things like how technology and mass media can lead to to outside information spreading, the North Korean government presumably knows that too. They're not. Some people talk about this as if we can get Trojan horses into North Korea by increasing exchanges in yeah. culture. And but, well, I mean, okay, maybe, but presumably, like the North Korean government people working in it, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for a long time. They're very good at it. I think that the cell phones is probably the most telling example of this. Where do you know the number of how many like two million cell phones? Oh, easily, from, yeah. like zero to a few million in like how long? Like a very short period of time. When 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 this like real proliferation of cell phones started happening, some people were, were talking about it as the first step to a North Korean Arab Spring, almost, mm. or at least asking the question, which might not be the wrong question to ask. Right. But it turns out that for <laughs> these phones are actually a really good way for the government to monitor people's communication. Mm. That each the, the government can monitor each and every phone. I I don't know the exact the uh, techno- technological specifics of it, but it was from from the North Korean government's point of view, it's like the best thing that could ever happen for <laughs> everyone in the country to have a little machine in their hands yep. through which that, that they can listen to With everyone. GPS. It's perfect. Tell it's where great. they are too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So does the success then of, of North Korea's surveillance system really, does it explain why there's been no large-scale uprising or popular opposition movements uh, or, or even Tiananmen Square type uh, activities in North Korea? Is that what you put it down to? I think it explains a, a great deal of that, yes. So so a lot of, like the Arab Spring, for example, like a, lo- a lot of these mass events, they've sort of, uh, they've been premised upon information traveling across a country pretty quickly, too. It's fascinating how still in North Korea, it's quite difficult to get certain types of information even across provincial boundaries. There might be a time lag on this because most people I've talked about have been out of the country for a few years, but right. even still, like a lot travels, a lot of rumors travel very slowly over, sometimes over several days. Mm. What legitimacy is the uh, does the North Korean state sort of base itself on? I'm not sure how to answer that in a brief way. Uh, well, d- defending the country against American imperialism, against South Korean decadence. Uh, it's not really my, it's not, it's not something I work on extensively, but mm-hmm. the, the security of, of, the, of the country is one of the main sources of legitimacy. And it is, I mean, you could argue it is for any country, but, but for North Korea, it's, uh, 
so much of, of, of the regime's legitimacy comes from from them sort of protecting the people against dangerous outside influences and, and uh, aggression by America. Right. So it always comes back to the threat of war and stuff, right. doesn't it? And, right. and uh, having the external enemy and come back to that term legitimacy of, of the North Korean government there, that we are, we're protecting you from the people. We're keeping the Americans at bay. We've got this wonderfully strong army and, and now uh, strong uh, missiles and, and uh, nuclear weapons. And, and that's that's keeping the, the uh, those evil American bastards away, which makes me wonder if you if North Korea had true peace with America and there was the, the removal of that threat, you know, and the, and the dialing back of all that kind of uh, uh, belligerent rhetoric. Uh, what would that do for the surveillance system? Would it be as necessary? Well, on the one hand, these systems sort of, they, they, they reinvent themselves. They reinvent their own legitimacy all the time. There's never a shortage of people's of enemies of the people because they are whoever you decide that they are, in a sense. So at the same time, it's very hard to, to just imagine this government in North Korea, how they would function, how they would, how they would speak, how they would act in a situation of true peace with America, it would just take away so much of, of what they are. Right. I mean, can, can you imagine? Could they like, afford that? I doubt it. I very much doubt it. That's not to say that the, the peace with America or, or South Korea is, is impossible necessarily. It's just such a f- foundational part of the state's identity. Right. It's fighting American. I think that the, the concept of guerrilla dynasty, coined by Adrian Buzzo, yes. makes a lot of sense. This is the this is North Korea. It is a state of it's a state that sort of it's geared up for war. Right, I mean, just look at state. the harvest is a struggle, mm. right? Like the everything is a battle. If they would take out all of that rhetoric, like yeah. all these functions, all the the every shock brigade and rename them to I don't know, like some task force, task force, right? right or like some new public management term. I don't know what it could be. I mean, it, it's it's hard for I have maybe it's just my my the boundaries of my my own imagination, but I have a very hard time imagining that happening yeah i mean if you were kim jong-un would you really want a true peace with north korea uh, with sorry with the united states of america one in which you have to say to your your uh, north korean citizens listen guys um it's all good we're no longer at war we're going to send half of the army home to get normal jobs and uh, uh it's it's going to be a new a new way yeah yeah would you want that no i would not want that i if i were kim jong-un i would think that that would be too big of a risk to take at the same time, one could imagine that th- there, there are ways of sort of refocusing the surveillance system, I suppose, or, or reorienting it towards some other threat, mm-hmm. but completely removing the aspect of, of a threat from the North Korean social model. I, I just don't think that that's doable unless you overhaul it all with, with the risks that that would come with. And that I don't, I don't think that Kim Jong-un would, would, want, would want to see that. How does um, state surveillance intersect with the, uh, the weekly self-criticism and mutual criticism sessions, the so-called Senghua Chonghua? Just judging from, from the interviews that I made, not as yeah. much as I thought hmm. that it would. It seems like Senghua Chonghua is a lot more about the little sort of petty stuff in the everyday, like oh, you, you, how you perform at work, which yeah, obviously that is a type of surveillance. It's not, it's not state, it's not like uh, the same type of surveillance, I suppose. But I mean, it's a key part of people watching over each other, for sure. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of ways, one of them is uh, if, if you do this with your colleagues on a weekly basis, you're going to get pretty annoyed at some people yeah. very quickly. And you're going to constantly be thinking, worrying about what might come up. Uh, to, to some extent, to a pretty large extent, 
it's kind of a show, isn't it? That, that you sort of just, a lot of people right. decide with their friends in advance. Okay, so I'll say this about you, you yeah. say this about me, and then we're all good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like routines like that, like that, like rituals like this, they foster a sense of um, suspicion between people. Mm. Keeps people atomized. Yeah. Which is, which is kind of ironic that here you've got North Korea, which is the country of uh, Ishim Dangyal, right? Yeah. The, the, the one single-minded unity where everyone's all together. But at the same time, the, the purpose of the Senghwal Chongwa is to keep everybody completely atomized so that you don't have uh, factions or, uh, or groups or teams. Speaking of rituals, we have these public displays like the, 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 at the morning of, um, of Kim Jong-il when he died and Kim Il-sung when he died. There were those uh, very public displays of, of uh, hysterical crying. Yeah. Um, or you know, conversely, uh, the ecstatic joy when Kim Jong-un pays a visit and you yeah. see people rushing into the sea to, to meet him at his boat. You know, yeah. um, do you... Do you imagine that there's also a sense of surveillance here in, the, in that, uh, you know, if you don't show enough joy, if you don't grieve enough, that that too could be, could have a reputational cost for you? Yeah. So when it comes to stuff like this, I mean, so much of it is just like social norms and expectations that people have of, of one another. I, I don't think that people are looking around themselves, scrutinizing everyone around them. I, I don't think this is stuff that like most most of this uh, of, of surveillance and, and like, it's not something you think about if you're when, when so in an event like Kim Il Sung's death mm. is what I've heard the most about. Uh, to most people, they probably didn't reflect very much on it. Everyone is crying, so you cry and you feel. I mean, that kind of atmosphere. Of course, you're gonna you're gonna feel something. It's like if South Korea won the World Cup mm-hmm. and you were frowning and you were very very sad, like when in the big crowd of people cheering, I feel kind of odd, wouldn't it? Mm. It's easier to just go go with the flow, sort of. Part of it is so much of this rests on on just these social norms and on on people wanting to sort of be like everyone else. I think if everyone around you is really sad, mm. then I, I that that's gonna it's gonna rub off on you yeah. mostly. Maybe not on you personally, but um, but yeah, of course, of course. If if you if you were to start jumping from joy at the news of Kim Il Sung's death, absolutely. But yes, this is also a feature of surveillance, the general social climate that you build up just by knowing that people are. This is a very politically sensitive moment, and you know that people are seeing you. Yeah. Yes, it matters a lot. Now, we know that uh, states and bureaucracies are often very inefficient. Uh, it's difficult to control. You've got various vested interests. You know, you might, we hear these stories periodically of um, you know, the government of, of the United Kingdom pronounces Joe Bloggs dead, and his wife is very surprised when she gets – well, he's very surprised when he gets a letter saying, you know, you're dead. We, we, we've deemed you dead. We're cutting off your pension, uh, you know. Uh, and, and it takes them sometimes months, if not years, to have the bureaucracy uh, turn uh, overturn that belief that someone's dead. It's a long-winded way of saying bureaucracy is very inefficient. How do we see this in, in surveillance in North Korea? Well, one of the strongest examples is with, with Songbun, just because it's so – it just uh, touches upon everything – so I've heard quite a few stories of people trying to get their Songbun registration changed. By, there is a formal process for this, by the way. You can go to Pyongyang and appeal 
to, I'm not sure exactly what organ you would appeal to, but you can, you can do it theoretically. But just through that, you need a, a travel right. permit, Right, so, so you, you need, starting with, you need a travel permit, and, and then you you need to be able to, to leave your workplace, and like, it's, it's really tricky. And again, even and with... seven witnesses. Seven witnesses, yeah. My, I'm, I'm, actually, I might be conf- getting confused on the exact number, but, but quite a few people who, again, would be able to vouch saying that, yes, I remember in 1940-something or 1930-something, I was there and I saw your grandpa. He didn't do what they say that he did. That's very hard. But on the other hand, like in, in the reverse, putting a sort of suspicious Songbun background on, on someone else is a whole lot easier because you always want to err on the side of caution yeah. as, as an official and a public official in North Korea, that you have a lot of incentives to, like if you get this wrong, that might be very bad for you. If, you, if we let someone slip through the cracks, that mm-hmm. might be very bad. But letting someone innocent fall into a worse Songbun category than they should have, it just doesn't have the same kind of repercussions. Um, there are a lot of cases of this where falsely someone has been been uh, placed in this or suspicious class background, even though they they have no no like they their political bloodline is flawless. Yeah. They're all like both very poor and socialist activists, not from the southern part of the peninsula. Th- that's great, but if somebody tells the government that that you had a suspicious grandpa or or, or, or something, then that's it. That's it's going to be a big problem for you. So. Uh, bureaucratically, the, just a lot of things like this go wrong. What, what one person told me a story of how they, like they were, they were pretty, like they politically they were they were doing very well. Like they had some like pretty good jobs and and uh, pretty good positions. They were, they were party members. Mm-hmm. One day, the the family got a like a, a dispatch slip. Just the only time I've heard of somebody getting relocated by through one of these, mm. saying that yes, from. From this so-and-so date, you're requested to report to this locality where you're going to be living now and, and oh uh, this work site. And, and they were saying, they, 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 somebody actually made it all the way to Pyongyang. Uh, I think they were already living in Pyongyang, but they, they made it to, to, to this institution where you're, this, uh, where you're able to appeal these things. Yeah. And they're saying, like, this is, what, what, what's the problem? Like, why, why did this happen? And they some, somehow heard through the grapevine that somebody had said something to a, like reported something about a, um, a distant relative. But they were saying this is it's not accurate. Like what? How could this happen? And then they were told that okay, that's yeah, that that's uh, that sucks for you. But yeah. now that you've already received this notice, then don't you want to go and work for the the, the party as good good party members mm-hmm. out in this lesser part of the country where your your services and your influence is much more needed? Probably. Yeah. So so um, a lot of really rough situations happen just because the bureaucracy isn't functioning so well. Mm. Now, what about on the flip side? How are we seeing new technologies being used in surveillance? So I, I know in China we see a lot of stories uh, in the media about uh, increased use of uh, closed-circuit television combined with facial recognition technology to uh, to get people, particularly in the uh, the rest of Xinjiang province and out there in the far west. Do we see any of this in North Korea? Well, so there's the digitization of the Songwon records. I mean, you've been to, you were when, when was the last time you were in North Korea? April you, this year. Yeah, so so you might have seen more more um, surveillance cameras. You no, know, it's funny. I didn't notice many of them. Oh, really? In fact, I, I noticed other people I noticed very low tech. Like when you when you would go to a statue of uh, one of the Kims, there'd be a guy just kind of hanging around in the background, dressed in black, just watching. And they could 
Yeah, but but at the same time, I've heard from another friend of mine uh, that the party founding monument in Pyongyang, you know, that kind of circular yeah, yeah, thing yeah. with the what is it, the uh, the hammer, the sickle, sickle and the brush. And the brush yeah. uh, apparently, that thing, if you approach too quickly ahead of the local guide, that there is some kind of a sensor that can set off an alarm, hmm. and also mosaics too have sensors near them. So wow. so there is some kind of technology around. I just don't see it. But as you say, that's the whole point of surveillance. You don't yeah. see the technology all the yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, one would wonder what prompted the uh, the decision to install these things well exactly i mean you know there's always an implication there about the security wouldn't exist if it wasn't needed you know that guy at the statue wouldn't be there if there wasn't a concern that somebody might i don't know scroll something obscene or stick something uh you know yeah a a notice up or a a sticker one could imagine a trajectory where these the proliferation of new technology for surveillance actually makes things a little more relaxed like if you don't need the inmin banjang to be Uh checking on on a a certain house or, or if you don't need people to really be spying on each other because your system works so well anyway, then there might be a range of sort of more per- behaviors that might be more permissible because mm-hmm. if the state is confident that it can control people anyway, then you might not need to, to have the same type of the same intensity of surveillance. Is it really? I mean, it does take quite a nervous state to, to be so so fixated on, mm-hmm. on, on surveillance, right? Like they, they got to be, they, it's not a confident, a confident government doesn't do things like no. that. So maybe if, if um, let's say the state finds more efficient and better ways to, to keep outside information out, maybe there are certain, or maybe there's certain types of, of uh, foreign media that can be allowed because mm-hmm. because the, the government will know that, well, if things go get really out of hand, we, we know how to handle it mm-hmm. anyway. So um, it's possible. Something to watch in the future there. As we near the end of our time together, let's just do a quick comparison of uh, North Korean surveillance with other countries. What have you noticed from, you know, uh, the Soviet Union, for example? So I actually like to start with China, if okay. you don't mind, where, where I think you, you mentioned the uh, the, the Sengal-Chongwa, like mutual like, criticism sessions. It's, it's, it's a tradition that I, to me, it seems very Maoist, hmm. sort of this idea that you can perfect a human by, by like, uh, citizens are raising each other like like parents and children and, yeah. and um, things like that seem to be a very like they seem like they might have Chinese roots uh, when it comes to the Inminban system there is there was a uh, an equivalent during the Japanese colon, colonial period mm. the uh, patriotic like the Egupan. I mean with the Soviet Union I mean so much of the North Korean state structure was constructed mm. along Soviet lines to begin with and and a lot of the people who constructed North Korea surveillance organs to begin with were educated in the Soviet Union so and then well you have the gulag you know that's um, clearly what do you if you have a bunch of people you need to get rid of what are you going to do with them well you put them away somewhere far away when we're comparing North Korea with the Soviet Union it's most reasonable to compare it with the Soviet Union under Stalin mm-hmm. just because there's so many features of the North Korean system that rhyme with with sort of Stalinism, but not necessarily with post-Stalin Soviet Union. Yeah. What about uh, Romania with the Ceausescu and the uh, the, the feared uh, Securitate? There are some numbers on this, but uh, the, the Securitate actually had a higher proportion of um, people on their payroll of uh, informants mm. than than in the GDR than the Stasi did. Really? In okay. East Germany. Yeah. And with North Korea I've seen some numbers that that put places North Korea even higher mm-hmm. in terms of informants per citizen. But but with Romania, the um, the sort of 
reliance reliance on on private citizens for information it's uh, it seems to be one uh, one one likeness well then here's a, maybe a, a good uh, counterexample or not counterexample but just a case of uh, a country then that went into war uh, democratic Kampuchea right mm, uh, well, yeah. now now back yeah. to uh, Cambodia yeah. under the Khmer Rouge I mean yeah. that was uh, very much uh, formed under a civil war from what little I've read you you couldn't have conversations with people without somebody uh, informing on you. I mean, it was very, very uh, much an atomized society. Yeah. I mean, North Korea is much more in a, a state of normalcy, if you will, mm. than because democratic Kampuchea lasted for, so it's uh, 1975 till 79, mm. so, so four, four years, during which 20% of the population was killed. It's a much more extreme situation than, than in the case of North Korea. But sort of the, 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 this constant vigilance, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't find it in, in, in East Germany, where, what I read about East Germany, not in the Soviet Union at times, but definitely not for most of its history, or, or in, in Romania for that matter. But Kampuchea, yes. We also, we should remember that in, 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 uh, in the case of Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge only fell because they tried to invade another country. They, did, right. they didn't fall by any sort of internal rebellion, although that might have happened later by, by sort of factions within yep. the Khmer Rouge, but you never know. But, uh, uh, but so there too, I mean, it did, it's, it, we, we can't really conclude that it, that, that it didn't work, that just really harsh surveillance um, it's it, it does work pretty well for for maintaining regime stability in general. How does North Korean surveillance work on citizens of North Korea outside its borders? For example, in Japan, among the Chongyon, or even in Beijing or other countries where you've got North Koreans studying overseas, or in in embassies in other countries where you've got North Koreans working overseas, or in in, in North Korean laborers working in yeah. uh, the Middle East or in Russia. How does that How does that work? So it's interesting. They uh, you, I don't know if you you've watched the uh, the Vice documentary where they go around to the former logging camps in Siberia. Yeah. And uh, it's the the so so how many documentaries did Vice do on North Korea? Like two or something? Like I think so. the one where they travel as tourists. I don't. It's I, my opinion is not very good, but the one where they, they look at the logging camps is fascinating because they go there and they show the, the dormitories and then you have the study room of the, the, the leader's history and writings. Like these things, even even in, in Russia, when North Korean workers are abroad, yep. you take these, this is so important that you you bring it with you. I peeked into the the embassy in Beijing yeah. just then and they have the the like the, the tower there with the, like a quote by... The Yongsing Tap? Yeah, yeah, they have the, the a... The Tower of Eternal Life. Is it the tower, is it with the, the tower with the, with a quote by Kim Il Sung that every single village has. Yeah, so, I think they call it the Yongsing Tap, the uh, Tower of Immortality, not uh, Eternal Life. So that's my. But that's so so. Um, it's not something that I've researched personally, but uh, but a lot of the features of the surveillance uh, system they seem to get even stronger when people are sent abroad for obvious reasons. You need to keep closer tabs on people. Um, at the same time, I was I was talking to. Uh, someone who was um, sent as a uh, student to to a foreign country uh, from North Korea, and he said that among his cohort, like at least thirty percent defected or something, which is like a really high number. Like of his cohort that was sent to to this this one country, it's very challenging to to keep keep track of people and sort of keep people in, in uh, towing the line in the same way when they're abroad. But um, but with Chongnyeon, I mean, they don't exercise any surveillance over. Chongnyeon mm. members, I believe. Have, have you met any Chongnyeon members? No. So I, I've I've had the uh, the pleasure of meeting a few in, in uh, over the years in J- in Japan, and and a lot of them you can talk pretty openly and pretty in a pretty relaxed way about mm. North Korea. With I find that they're they're not it's 
it's not like they, they they don't have like it doesn't feel like you're speaking with a North Korean and they're they're not North Korean. So, but at the same time, when they when they go to North Korea, I've actually been surprised at how little freedom they have. Even people with relatives, mm. you know, they. I'm not sure it's the same in every each, each and every case, but just recently I spoke to someone who, who said that uh, he was sort of explaining it as, yes, when we go there, we can do almost whatever we want, just as long as we we ask our minders. Mm-hmm. You know, so they have minders. You know, they they're like the most loyal wow. people with the with the state among anyone living abroad, anyone not North Korean, and they they're still subject to to a lot of suspicion. Hmm. Well, that I think that that's going to have to do it for that. That's a fantastic discussion we've had there on Sylvanus. Thank you very much, Benjamin, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Where can people follow you? Are you on the Twitter scape? I am uh, Benjamin Katzef. That's K-A-T-Z-E-F-F for Katzef. Okay. Well, all one word? Yes. Okay. All one word. And are you a, a prolific Twitterer? I try not to be, but uh, I mostly tweet about like harvest numbers in North Korea. But um, hmm. yeah, I'll... Would love to meet you all online. And c- can I just add uh, nkeconwatch.com, uh, North okay. Korean Economy Watch, for anyone interested in following the North Korean economic developments. Um, that's the uh, the website that I that I run. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, thanks once again for joining us. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. You can save $50 on your first year's subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, uh, botched answers, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>